Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Murray Mitchell from the University of South Carolina. Uh, today, we're gonna discuss the article titled Chapter Six, Perspectives on the Future of Doctoral Programs. And that paper was recently published in JTPE as a part of a special issue. We had Hans Vondemars in a few episodes ago talking about Chapter Two. Um, and you can find the full site of this article in the notes. I've uh, added a link to there so you can read the full article, but uh, Dr. Mitchell, welcome to the podcast and thanks for coming on. Hey, Risto. Great. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk a bit about this work that was an outgrowth of conversations and shared concerns with colleagues that I had and continue to have the pleasure of working with. Uh, Hal Lawson from University of Albany, Hans Vandermars that you just mentioned from Arizona State, and Phil Ward from the Ohio State University. So uh, uh, this collaborative piece uh, warrants uh, attention to all three of those uh, uh, colleagues as well. Yeah, and it's it's been interesting because the um, the paper is, like you said, it is a discussion because you talk about really important things in the special issue. Um, and the co content today is about doctoral programs in DP. So I guess the great place to start would be maybe you can give us an overview of the role of doctoral programs for physical education, teacher education, which we all use the acronym DP. Um, so what, what role do those doctoral programs play in the physical education system in general? Sure, great. Well, I, I guess uh, um, what we tried to do at the start of the special issue, just to give a, a little bit more context, was that we tried to make the case that understanding what happens in the name of physical education for children and families and the communities in which they live is really an ecological environment or system where all of the components are interconnected. That is, what happens in any single component impacts and is impacted by all the other components. While that's a relatively simple concept upon initial inspection, well, closer attention really suggests that those influences are much more complex mm -hmm. and vary in directionality and intensity in some predictable and in many unpredictable ways. So this chapter, our focus on doctoral programs, was an effort to kind of tease out some of that complexity. And it, it seems almost uh, paradoxical that we talk about a system where each piece interacts with each other piece. But really, to drill down, you've got to look at individual pieces. Right. So for the doctoral programs and the faculty who create and deliver those programs, there's a, a task to prepare future faculty who in turn will prepare the professionals who will create and deliver PEAT or physical education teacher education programs to prepare future teachers for our nation's schools. As a result, some awareness is required of uh, at least several uh, key kinds of questions. I guess that starts with uh, some understanding what is or is not going on in and around K-12 school programs and what is needed to continue what is good that's happening and or to impact what needs attention. Uh, yeah. Another feature is uh, uh, the result of uh, having a better understanding, therefore, as to what should go into the preparation of K-12 teachers uh, in the design of quality PEAT programs. This is a curriculum design kind of a question. So, for example, do aspiring teachers need more content knowledge, um, which Phil has spent a good deal of time on? Uh, do they need more pedagogical knowledge? Is there more time that needed to be needs to be spent on uh, pedagogical content knowledge? Or is there something else in some of the discipline specific folks would argue more for some of those foundational areas and I guess related to college and university programs some some attention to how all that fits into obligations for a broader liberal arts education that might help students become you know what parents and, and communities expect of college educated students that they have some more global understanding of the world around them. So all of those are really kind of curriculum related issues. Uh, there are also some kinds of insight required for the skills needed by aspiring peak faculty members to be successful in their respective programs. That is for the demands on them to contribute to teaching, scholarship, and services faculty members, which again can range uh, dramatically across different types of institutions that they may pursue careers in. And frankly, many of those same demands are also made of DP faculty as they navigate their own careers in right. colleges and universities where they also have teaching scholarship and service requirements. Mm -hmm. So in, I guess in short, a great deal of complexity faces designers of DP programs and the decisions made impact the viability and relevance of physical education across all of those levels. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely all interconnected throughout. And, you know, those people who are in higher education, teaching future faculty, 
they all went through some sort of doctoral program if they are in a tenure track line or a lot of uh, instructors have also gotten their doctorate degrees. So you highlight a couple of different questions facing what should be taught in DP program in the paper. You talk about how many methods courses are you supposed to take in physical education content? What type of theory should you know, doctoral students be um, you know, taught or exposed to? How many stats classes is, is enough? And so these programs have to make these tough decisions, but where, like, how do they make those decisions of what is most worth to teach for the future of the people who are going to be educating the future teachers? Uh, you know, tough question, and I don't think there is a single answer to that. And that's uh, uh, part of the concern with any kind of of prescriptive uh, edict or dictate for what all programs must be. I think that's uh, that's a mistaken approach, uh, and hugely problematic with uh, many former efforts at developing professional standards that try and dictate here's exactly what must be included and how that must happen. And I think uh, at least part of that uh, uh, comes back to an understanding of what different communities require and uh, benefit from. Uh, There are other pieces in there of the unique expertise that might be available in, in particular programs. And even there, I think there are some some ways around that that uh, we we tried to talk about in uh, a little later part of uh, uh, the article where we described some different approaches to design of programs that can extend beyond the borders of the specific program that's there. Right. Uh, and and there are no like specific and and I know we'll get to this later, but I think it's important to understand like we we don't actually have DP standards as we do have for. Uh, like K to 12 Shape America standards for physical education and even the Shape America standards for pre-service teachers, like the goals that there's none for DP. Is that correct? That's correct. And I think that's uh, problematic. And you're right. We did address that. And we offered a couple of different approaches to that. And I didn't know if you wanted to uh, hit that now or. Yeah. And and I think we can get back to it, but I think it's important to understand like when we're, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in a different university than you are. And, you know, we are making individual choices on what content to add, and we might not necessarily be teaching the same content, whereas that's really important if you think about standards-based education, and there's different schools of thought to where we, like, where different people stand on standards-based education, but it's, it's something that we necessarily have never had a conversation with at George Mason University versus South Carolina versus Auburn versus you know, Greensboro, there's no consensus to what that is. Um, no, no, there really isn't. Yeah. And so, uh, that's problematic. And I, uh, you know, one of the neat things that I had an opportunity to be involved with was uh, when I came to South Carolina, um, Judy Rink was, uh, Judy's retired, but is still very active. Uh, um, Judy, Judy uh, kind of led the development and delivery of the, well, the PEAT program and the DP program here. And we participated in essentially a curriculum audit, which which is another piece I guess I'll, I'll try and talk about at some mm-hmm. point here, was um, the notion of uh, deciding what it is you're trying to do, uh, having some foundational beliefs that drive what you're doing. It's not just a smattering of courses that you kind of thought would be neat to do, but there's some research base or and or theoretical foundation to what it is you're trying to do and we did a curriculum audit we we had a look at the courses we were offering to see to what extent they fit into what we believed to be important and we looked for the extent to which the courses we had designed and sequenced were delivering on that promise and we made some tweaks to try and be more consistent with what it is we believe should be going on to reconcile that with what was actually happening um, to figure out what we wanted to keep, what we wanted to tweak, and what we wanted to, to uh, replace. Yeah. And I think that's a process that, that uh, other programs would also benefit from, from uh, attempting, that is looking at what's going on in their program and, and studying it. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to uh, visit Georgia State University, where Mike Metzler and uh, Bonnie Cherzma uh, were working at that time. And um, we did something similar there, where uh, Mike and Bonnie tried to orchestrate a uh, um, research 
level quality assessment of what was going on in their program. So it wasn't really a, uh, um, an accreditation visit per se, uh, but it amounted to a, a true effort to reflect on what they were doing and, and do exactly what I described, explore the extent to which what they thought they were doing was perceived in similar ways by teachers out in the schools, by students in the program, uh, by by each other, uh, having dialogue among the faculty to talk about what it was they were doing and, and to explore the extent to which uh, all of those things meshed. Because sadly, frequently, they do not match up. Yeah, absolutely. Well. And, and I think that, you know, based on your experience of observing another program, going through a curriculum audit versus some university that has never taken those steps, that doctoral program experience can be very different. And there are different routes that DP student could take. So uh, maybe in the in the beginning of this, when we're diving into this, can you talk about the different routes, like uh, a potential, let's say uh, the listener is a master student who's thinking about going to get their doctorate. I always get this question of, okay, should I go the PhD route or the EDD route? There's a school really close to me that has an EDD I could do or do I do a PhD and move? And so can you talk about what the difference between a PhD and EDD is, and also who should be pursuing one or the other? Sure, uh, let's, let's start with um, qualifying the difference between what is and what might be true. So in theory, a PhD is a research degree. That is the focus is supposed to be on generating new knowledge. And in theory, an EDD is a more practical degree with more of a focus on the application of knowledge. Mm -hmm. But in practice, you may be aware of colleagues who have earned an EDD and are among the most talented contributors to new knowledge creation, and others with a PhD who may not contribute to the generation of new knowledge at all, right. but in fact are adept at the application of insights to professional practice. So I guess my advice to people has always been to look at the people that are there and what kinds of things they're doing and the extent to which that matches up with what your own professional aspirations might be. Because I think the PhD and the EDD, although in the chapter we tried to characterize that as a, a, a feature of how programs should pay attention to what their mission is and match it up with theoretically what that kind of a degree should be, that isn't what happens in practice. Uh, and indeed, in many cases, it's an historic inheritance that the degree at a particular institution is either an EDD or a PhD, but the work that is done there is actually uh, one or the other. So it may be a perfect match, and a PhD program is generating uh, uh, highly skilled researchers, and there may be uh, EDD programs that are doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. So unfortunately, that, that uh, uh, label is less meaningful than it might be. Yeah. And I think and I, what matters I think more is paying attention to who's there and what they're doing. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's my experience. I, I did my doctoral work with Steve Silverman at Teachers College, so and I have an EDD, whereas that place, when you see Teachers College EDD and you see like who I worked with, that I had a very similar experience than a lot of my colleagues who did PhDs at different... Um, R1, R1 universities. And I think that, you know, when I, when I was advised where to go, I asked a kinesiology professor who's a big, he had an EDD and he was just like so prolific in publishing research in kinesiology. I asked him about doing the EDD route and he recommended that I don't because it was something that hindered him in the beginning. And yeah. And I think that, you know, times are different, but it's also like, who was your advisor? Where did you go? What, like you talked about, historically, Teachers College always has had an EDD versus yeah. a PhD. And, um, but I think lately, and I'll go off a little script here, but like, I think lately I've had a lot of students ask me, they want to get their doctorate. They want to teach in higher education. They're practicing PE teachers and they see this opportunity to go through an EDD program at some university that I've never heard of. And they'll say, hey, I can get my doctorate through here. And I'm like, yeah. and, and it's fully online or something. And they'll say, 
do you think this will hinder me in a job interview or a job application? And my answer to them, and I'm, I'm curious to hear yours, my answer to them is I, I do think it is a hindrance. If you go to XYZ University that I've never heard of, study with somebody who I've never heard of, and you have an EDD, I'm not sure if that, again, at research one universities, that will be hindrance. But what about the other types of universities that are more teaching centered? Do you think that that's a hindrance? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, to some extent, I think it's a market driven kind of a, a, a situation. That is, a few years, few years back, uh, some of the uh, Jackie Lund and uh, and a few other colleagues were looking at um, the results of what search chairs were reporting about the pools of candidates they were fielding. And largely they were lamenting the low skill level, but the bottom line was they needed a body to teach the classes. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, I guess where it might be more of a hindrance is in uh, career progress. Interesting. So, um, you know, where you might be a warm body that, uh, you know, can stand in front of a group and we need somebody to teach this class might gain you some entree with uh, what uh, a, a former instructor of mine once referred to as the union ticket. You need the degree as a kind of a union ticket to to secure the, the uh, position. The, the issue arises when a three-year review or six-year review comes along and you have never acquired the skills to do the things that are going to be rewarded at your institution. Which, again, brings us back to EDD, PhD. I think that's less of an issue than what skills you acquire, mm -hmm. what uh, um, kinds of dispositions are modeled for you and that you embrace. Uh, yeah. Regardless of what level of institution you're at, if you are a horrible teacher, um, you're not going to stay there and probably you're not going to enjoy it. Right. If you generate absolutely no scholarship, be it theoretical or uh, practical how-tos for strategy and strategies and uh, jopard kinds of things you're probably not going to retain the position um, and if you're in an r1 and you're not uh, either securing or at least applying for and, and uh, acquiring some grant support um, or publishing database pieces in tier one kinds of journals you're probably not going to keep that position so uh, it, it's uh, i think most of the kinds of folks that you're talking about as master students who are con contemplating a doctoral program, it's they, they want the simple answer, go to go to here or go to there. Right. And, and I, you know, it's not that easy. Um, certainly on the front end, uh, a, a mail order kind of a degree uh, doesn't have quite the same credibility. And if you're in a pool of applicants that is up against some other folks that are from some high power institutions, who have worked with some highly prolific scholars, uh, chances are you're going to be in second place compared to them. Yeah. But uh, the, the data seems to suggest there are fewer and fewer such stellar graduates out there. And uh, folks that are searching for pedagogy faculty in particular are often left wanting for qualified candidates. Where? So I, I guess it's less about will it get me a job and it's more about uh, those difficult decisions folks have to make relative to what's going on in my life. What can I afford? Can I take two, three years off to be a full-time student mm -hmm. and take that pay cut? Um, and what is it that I want to do further down the road? Do yeah. I want to be a researcher scholar? Do I want to be a practitioner scholar? Uh, do, do I want to teach uh, soccer and basketball? Right. <laughs> so what, what about, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about this when, this is the third semester in in higher education or third year that has been third academic year that's been touched by online classes and some sort of online instruction. Where mm -hmm. do you feel like these universities that are putting together EDDs or PhDs online that are not, let's say, and I don't know, I, I have no idea about Rocky Mountain University, but there's like an online university that's called that, right? Yeah. Getting a degree from there versus someone like, you know, UNCG like Greensboro, where you have faculty who are scholars in our field in physical education who are publishing in top tier journals. And those are the instructors for those courses. So like, but it's 
it's online, although they go in there during the summer. So like, do you, yeah. do you see like these doctoral programs are going to expand in different places that will recruit students in who are living in California, but they're going to school in Idaho to get a doctorate degree, but still studying with, with people who know what they're talking about? You know, I think uh, we're in a brave new world. The pandemic has forced upon us some um, um, modifications to the way we've done business in the past. And I think there is a real place for uh, that kind of collaborative distance learning uh, opportunities. And I think even places, and, I, and I'm not familiar with the Rocky Mountain <laughs> program, but so I'm, I'm not offering any disparaging comments on it. It really depends how it's delivered, because frankly, uh, even top tier institution can do a terrible job of delivering instruction yeah. uh, online if the folks haven't made a real commitment to understanding how to do that, because it's different. It's quite different than having a bunch of bodies sitting in your classroom and uh, and what kind of interaction can occur there. It requires different sets of skills and commitments. But I think the uh, online or, or distributed learning kind of an approach or distance learning, depending on your nomenclature, um, that, that can be a, an outstanding way to capitalize on all sorts of resources. And this is something that uh, the colleagues I mentioned, Hal, Hans, and uh, Phil and I have talked about at some length of the potential benefits of taking advantage of a skill set of somebody who does that work. So, for example, if you were working with a doctoral student who wanted to do something in socialization, um, there are a few people around the country who have done a bunch of work in that and inviting them for some guest opportunity to offer a lecture on a specific topic or even to participate on a committee, I think is is just a tremendous opportunity that beats the daylights out of just saying, well, you want to work on that. I don't know much about it, but I'll be your supervisor. Right. I'll do the best that I can. Right. Um, so I, I, again, regardless of who the, the host of a degree is or the, the, sort of home department is the potential to take advantage of the expertise that out that is out there i think is truly a, a rich rich opportunity particularly as things like uh, uh, zoom teams skype and all those online kinds of support platforms get better and better yeah. and if any infrastructure support ever passes through our political bodies and places that are a little bit more remote can get uh, dependable consistent service for online presence, um, then I think the opportunity for education is just going to uh, explode in a, in a positive kind of a way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that you're right. There's so many opportunities that are out there uh, for us to do things a little differently and, and to tap into these resources. And I'll, I'll give a plug to Ben Dyson for a great idea. He, uh, he recorded a pedagogy seminar and we launched it through the podcast. So if you go in, um, I think we started last summer and we've just been doing them once a month. They finished this summer, uh, but he has all these scholars from all around the world that come in and talk specifically about their topic as related to physical education. And, yeah. you know, there's thousands and thousands of downloads from this seminar that ordinarily just would not have been accessible to anybody that wasn't in Greensboro during that time. And I feel like you right. know, listening in on, and I know Phil Ward was, uh, did one on there as well. And listening to him, I've never talked or I've, you know, I've never had long conversations with Phil and I've never seen him guest lecture or anything, but I could just like be a fly on the wall and listen to, to him talk yeah. about it. And so I think that those innovative approaches are definitely there, whether that's, you know, a group, it doctoral seminar that you meet, it, you know, once a week for your doctoral seminar, but once a month you dial up another university and you have those doctoral students meet with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and so I think the rich opportunity there is for the opportunity for the doctoral students to have some sort of debrief and discussion, but I think it does require some facilitator, the course instructor, if you will, to be, uh, up on whatever the lecture topic might be to be able to facilitate some of that discussion and direct attention to pieces that otherwise might be missed. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, even an, an adept lecturer on occasion will touch on topics that are uh, 
that, that require a bit more foundation from someone to prepare the students to to really kind of get the hang of, okay, what was Dr. Ward addressing there? You need some background understanding for that. And having some facilitator um, that is in the home institution that is aware of that, uh, uh, of the content that's going to be addressed and can uh, field questions, can do some preliminary um uh, preparation for students to to truly benefit from the lecture so there's more expertise involved than just plugging in a lecture which which i'm not trying to suggest you were you were intimating but i think that kind of a resource can be tremendous when it's used appropriately yeah. it can be a huge cop-out when you know it's like uh, uh showing the film or <laughs> giving the hand a handout when you're going to be a uh, uh you need a substitute teacher for today and you actually haven't prepared anything for the class to to deal with right so it's a potentially huge resource opportunity and i haven't seen those uh, things from ben so that's i appreciate the heads up to that i'd like to look for that yeah and i think that that's you know i talked about this with uh david dom a little while ago of uh the massive online open classes, the MOOCs, right? That yep. they we thought that they were going to be the next big thing, and you realize yep. that asynchronous learning in that way, when you're just listening to lectures and you're not interacting, and there's no like teacher like teasing out that information, pushing you to learn in different ways or read deeper or think deeper, deeper about certain things. It it let, leaves a lot to be hoped for. And there are MOOCs that work really well. Yeah. But overall, it wasn't what we thought or some faculty feared it would be 10 years ago when they were really like emerging and we're all thinking, oh, yeah. this is going to be the next big wave. What are we going yeah. to do? Yep, yep, yeah. absolutely. And I think uh, you've hit on it and you've reinforced the notion that it requires somebody that is first in what's going to be offered to give some context and preparation and then to do something with it afterwards. Yeah. Some accountability, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah. So the bulk of the chapter, you talk about these challenges and opportunities that DP faces. And you talk about your recommendations to what DP faculty can do to prioritize these, these recommendations or the challenges and opportunities. And I think it would be great because you have these five points laid out in the paper and maybe we can just highlight a couple things from each. So the first one is uh, preparing quality educators for our nation's schools. Can you talk to that point real quick? Uh, sure, and we've, we've touched on this uh, a little bit. So uh, there has been a documented decline in doctoral enrollments and that impacts the viability of doctoral programs to prepare future teacher educators which is going to trickle down to the quality of folks that we were just talking about, about uh, who will staff peak programs. Mm -hmm. So uh, addressing this reality is likely going to require some creativity and program design. And some examples in the chapter were, again, consistent with what we were just talking about relative to MOOCs and so forth. We shared an example from Europe and one from Georgia Tech um, that, that are in the article that basically touch on the same notion of tapping into the expertise from some colleagues that are elsewhere. But again, that requires using the uh, expertise that's in the home institution to situate and prepare students for what's coming and then to do something with it afterwards. Yeah. So again, the, the pandemic has somewhat serendipitously forced many of us to capitalize on collaborating electronically for, versus, again, being limited only to what's available on our campus. Yeah. Um, the, the second challenge is preparing future faculty to determine and then deliver an appropriate preparation program. So we've got a bunch of models. Uh, teaching personal and social responsibility might be really appropriate in some schools, in some areas of K-12 programs and not others. Other areas might benefit from sport ed or teaching games for understanding. And frankly, there are other models that might be more appropriate. But how do we prepare future, future faculty to do needs assessments and design appropriate delivery mechanisms? Right. So that's that was kind of that issue um, related to a, a number of years ago. Daryl Seedentop described the exposure curriculum that is the, the same devil that uh, faces uh, many teachers in, in K-12 schools. Do yeah. they get that, uh, you know, smorgasbord approach to a bunch of different activities. And just as students are acquiring some some skill, we stop and move on to something else. So they get exposed to a bunch of stuff, right. but never actually earn any competence in anything. And so when you're learning models, is it, are you 
in a university that's going to teach TPSR really in depth and hope, which we'll get to kind of the continuous professional development later, but hope that eventually they'll get the rest of them or teach the model's structure and then hope that they pick up some things. Uh, and, yeah. that, and that's tough because I, you know, I've, I've seen different programs that focus on one and a lot of people that come out of there, they know that really well, but then they have the ability to learn the other ones versus, you know, teaching them all seven, eight, ten different models in the two years that you really have in the U.S. to to get it done. I think it's I think it's tough. Um, yeah, there there are twin issues there. I guess one is one is that they know one model really well and don't know any others. And if they find themselves in a community that uh, would benefit from a different model, they're they're in trouble because they can't yeah. do it. Yeah. Uh, if they don't get an in-depth understanding of any of them, then they can't deliver anything very well. Right. Uh, but that, I think, relates to the an, another notion that we talked about of adaptive competence, mm-hmm. uh, which we, we tried to talk about. It's kind of, I guess as I was just kind of thinking about this, it sort of came to me, it's not unlike the, uh, I, can, I can give you a fish and eat today, or I can teach you how to fish and you eat forever, mm-hmm. kind of an analogy, if that's not too, too gross level. Um, but that notion of... Uh, understanding what's required to remain relevant. And I guess I, I think back to a, a comment Larry Locke made a bunch of years ago when he said, read, it makes you smarter. Um, yeah. And I, I saw that modeled by Hal Lawson, who, uh, for whom I worked as a, a research assistant many, many years ago. He had me hunting down journals I'd never heard of to find articles that were directly related and relevant to professional practice that I would never have been aware of. Um, Daryl Seedentop was another character who who advised my dissertation. I was looking at scholarly behaviors of faculty members. They had a roster of professional journals, and he's going through this roster. And you know, the question was, which of these do you read regularly? And uh, and at least one article before the next issue comes out. And he's going down this article of like twenty journals, of, uh, and you know, yep, 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 yep. And the folks that uh, participated in my study generally hovered around two. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was Julie Jopard. The other one was some sort of uh, sports-specific thing like runner's world. Yeah. So I think there's a real issue with uh, uh, any kind of modeling of uh, uh, an awareness of what contemporary literature looks like, both theory and research. Uh, modeling that commitment to being aware of that stuff, understanding how to translate it into my practice as a, a doctoral educator, my practice as a PEAT faculty member, and my practice as a K-12 teacher – and, and also having the skills to recognize, okay, what should we keep? Because this is important and valuable. What needs to be tweaked a little bit because it doesn't fit really well in my community? And what needs to be discarded because this is simply uh, anachronistic. It's inappropriate to continue to do, uh, and we need to get rid of it. Understanding those criteria is a skill set, and I think those are key parts of adaptive competence and learning learning those skills to acquire new knowledge, understand how to apply and translate it, that is, apply it to my own practice and translate it for the practice of others, and using those criteria of understanding what to keep, replace, or, or adapt. I think those are key pieces of this, which is kind of a segue into what you mentioned earlier, too, the continuous professional development notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a, a real unfortunate phrasing of a, a doctorate as that terminal degree, yeah. which I fear has led some to believe that they've now reached the mountaintop. Um, no need for me to learn anymore. I have all of the answers. I can do it all. Mm-hmm. And I think quality education has prepared people to recognize there are more questions out there. Um, my learning hasn't ended. It has begun. And for folks that come out of programs, which brings us back to what a quality program does, uh, it either prepares you for there's a world of questions out there and you now have the tools to understand how to ask them and how to research them a little better versus the programs that say, you've achieved this credential, you're done. You're at the top of the heap, stop. Um, right. That Those kinds of dispositions, I think, are more critical than is it from Rocky Top or is it from Ohio State or is it from wherever, George Mason, yeah. South Carolina. It, it just doesn't matter where it's from. It's more about the, the quality of the dispositions that the graduates acquire. And when they've acquired that, that commitment to continuing to learn and recognizing there is a need – to uh, continue to understand what's out there. Theories change, research changes. 
I guess on a real simplistic level, even the notion of whether or not athletes need water Mm -hmm. (laughs) when they work out in the heat. And I guess I thought that was done until every once in a while, a couple of years ago, and then you'll read about yet another athlete who has been subjected to some coach who thought, um, this is how I build endurance and build uh, mental toughness by withholding water from you. Um, You know, this is incredible that there isn't uh, some accountability for these folks to be aware of. We know more. We know what athletes need to stay healthy when they're working in the heat. And, you know, there are other uh, things related to punishment, all that stuff. And I think that that's where, you know, even, so let's say my, my major qualitative research methods class was in 2013. There are some qualitative articles that I read now that are like way, way, way beyond what I learned in that specific class. Like the qualitative research that's being done by, you know, people who are using these theories that I never learned about in my doctoral program because I didn't have the class or there wasn't a researcher teaching that. It's, you know, and that's why some of the times, you know, for, for us at ARA, a lot of times in our special interest group, the top paper that comes out is actually a graduate student paper because they are the cutting edge of the field in certain ways because they're reading or getting into a emerging theory or an emerging concept and doing this stuff. Whereas a person who, like you said, thinks that they have completed their terminal degree and don't keep up with the literature soon when they're publishing papers six, seven, eight years down the line, they're starting to get rejected because it's not, you know, things have moved on. And and I think that that's also problematic in a way because where are we able to get continuous professional development that's structured? It's not structured in the same way as, um, let's say for K to 12 educators, you show up, you have this professional development, it's on you to go do it at conferences yeah, it, you hear a 12 that, minute presentation and then you have to go read 17 papers to understand what that presentation was about well i think there's there's again seeing that modeled seeing continuous professional development modeled in doctoral preparation programs and and expected of students in the program is part of it but part of it is that professional responsibility yes. uh, and and attending to uh, what it is that i that I want to learn to some extent and recognizing it as continuous as opposed to uh, continuing a kind of a semantic difference. But I guess I've thought of continuing professional development as I, you know, I, I just keep chipping away at uh, going to another seminar or attending a conference or reading a paper as opposed to continuous where there is some cumulative focus and intentionality. That is, there is something that I I am trying to acquire and I will get bits and pieces of it in different places because I recognize it as an area of interest, perhaps, possibly an area of need. And as you suggested, uh, maintaining some currency of my uh, command of qualitative research methods and tools. Um, those would be things that if I represent myself as a qualitative researcher, then I really have to do. I have an obligation to the students who will work with me. I have an obligation to the journal for which I review papers that I've claimed qualitative expertise, that when those papers come in, I'm uh, appropriately evaluating them, which again plays into the development of a knowledge base for our field. Yeah. If I don't know what I'm doing as a reviewer, I can't give good feedback to new authors uh, and I don't appropriately gatekeep what is a solid new contribution to knowledge versus what is uh, nonsense right. or antiquated. So, yeah, I mean, and there's a bunch of different ways to roam. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be isolated reading. Mm-hmm. I think uh, one of the other things that we had uh, um talked about were, were the uh, kinds of learning communities, uh, whether networked improvement communities or those other kinds of collegial kinds of relationships that develop. And, and honestly, that was what uh, where this special issue came from. Some really some informal kinds of discussions where uh, Hal, Hans, Phil and I just kind of began talking and our discussions evolved into some what were some shared interests, which were not always cohesive. Uh, we 
had arguments. I mean, you know, good natured and and professional and collegial. I still consider all of them friends to, of mine. Um, but we were able to agree to disagree on some things. We we see some things differently, but we were able to you know have those discussions about the issues and topics, uh, and they weren't. Uh, personal confrontations, mm-hmm. if you will, and I, and I think that's a critical way to have, and and some of the literature on some of the um, self-reflective, uh, uh, the uh, I'm blanking on the name of it. Sorry, the the SIG at ARA for yeah. um, self-study. The, mm-hmm. That's it. It's the self-study yeah. SIGs. Talk about having a a an essential friend. Um, some some different organizations use slightly different terms, but mm-hmm. bottom line, it's a somebody a, a trusted relationship with somebody that can be a critical listener for me right. that can give me the difficult to hear uh, feedback uh, and ask me the tough questions to to make me be more thoughtful about what it is that i do i think that kind of uh, uh, uh collegiality is critical for personal uh, growth as well as uh, professional uh, expertise yeah and, and i think you kind and- of I think you kind of touched on the, the one of the last two points. One was the networked improvement communities, and then the fifth point was professional standards. So can you talk to those before we get to about the DPEAT standards that you, you brought up? Sure, sure. Well, the, I, you know, there were several chapters that talked about the uh, network improvement uh, communities, and there are a number of articles that are out there that talk about it. And I, I guess the bottom line is time and money are resources often in short supply. And uh, that ability to work together, to reach out to uh, colleagues, to share insights, uh, um, to address issues, work together to address roadblocks is simply valuable activity. And I think a key part of it is uh, related to, to uh, an activity I used to do with uh, uh, students uh, that put them in a position to have to ask for help. Uh, and in many cases, we've taught our athletes uh, a kind of a tradition from which many of our faculty come from that asking for help is kind of a defeatist way. You're a loser if you have to ask for help, if you can't do it by yourself. And I think that's truly an unfortunate handicap. And recognizing that asking for help is not defeat, but it, that it's a skill. And one of the lessons that may not be embraced by everyone uh, is is worth paying attention to. And I think networked improvement communities can be that kind of an organization where you, you build some trust initially and it becomes a safe place to ask questions about things I'm having trouble with. I, I think of, uh, uh, another area of study that relates to this is that notion of an imposter mm-hmm. syndrome where we have that sense that um, we're not as uh, uh, knowledgeable or skillful as uh, I've tricked other people into believing, and I don't want to open my mouth and prove to them that I'm not as skillful. Right. But to recognize that we all have some of that sense of, of uh, vulnerability and that asking for help and benefiting from the insights and expertise and support from others can be a key way to maintain your credibility, consistency, quality of uh, delivery. Um, so networked improvement was one of those. I'm sorry, what was... Uh... Yeah, and, and I think that the networked improvement communities, I think things like the Peak Collaborative that came out of, um, you know, this is a, a group of Peak faculty yep. who meet once a month uh, on online to talk about issues that are important. And I think spinning off of that, I've led a couple groups on a secondary methods small group or a primary methods small group when we were all trying to figure out how how the heck are we gonna do this remote? Like, how are yeah. we going to be able to teach this? And I and I really do hope that these stick around. And yeah. you know, I've I've done one on a models based practice conversation when we uh, just got a bunch of people who do research on models based practice, which is not something that I am uh, focusing on, but I was very curious about it. So yep. we had like 90 people on the call that were just listening and, you know, top scholars talking about how that has moved. And 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 it's interesting, like there there's definitely ways to to get involved. And I think, you know, there are people who have suggested for me to like run something different, like, hey, you should do a small group on this. And after a certain time, you just run out of physical time. And so I yep. recommend it to them. I'm like. It's not that I need to run it or somebody else needs to run it. Just email three people, make that your group and ha- start having these conversations. And, yeah. you know, with the 
you know, ability for us to do video conferencing from any time, any time zone, I think it's, I think it's really set us up for success. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the last, last part was about professional standards. Um, Sorry, just before, just before we leave that, I think uh, the other piece of that is uh, helping people realize they don't have to be the, the authority or the person that gives the answers, simply facilitating that discussion and soliciting the input from others is, is a real service. So uh, doing exactly what you've done of encouraging other folks to, you know, be a facilitator for that kind of thing and starting small, I think is, is tremendous mentoring for folks to do exactly that. Cause it's, I, I think a critically important kind of an opportunity for a lot of folks that are isolated to address some of their feelings of isolation. That's not unique to elementary teachers that are the one P teacher in the school or uh, some, some other larger schools, uh, uh, upper level middle school and high school, where the teachers feel very isolated. Uh, it's absolutely true in many colleges and universities as well, where there's one yeah. person who does research methods. Yeah. So these kinds of groups, I think, can be a tremendous way to address some of those feelings of isolation, too. Yeah, or a small, like, growing doctoral program. Like, we, we have our first doctoral student in physical education at Mason now, and you know she participates in a doctoral student, like physical education doctoral student group that meets monthly during the semester, and it's just an yeah. open forum where it's all doctoral students from different universities just talking about their experiences and learn like getting those communities set up, and and I think those are those are super super important. Yeah, I, I building those it's essentially building collaborative relationships, yeah. and I think. We, we, as a field, have not done terribly well with that, but uh, yeah. and there was something I was recently yeah. talking, or two times to do something. One of them is 20 years ago, and one of them is right now. <laughs> yeah. So if you didn't do it 20 years ago, now's the next best time. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and you're on it. It was great. And so the last, the last part was about professional standards, and maybe you can fold this into explaining your development of the suggestions for DP standards and you know if you scroll through the uh, through the chapter you'll see that you have four standards with kind of substandards underneath as your right. kind of suggestion of uh, a jumping off point for programs to consider these so can you talk about the professional standards and what where sure. did you why did you feel like this was important to put out Sure. Okay. Well, so first I've participated in the preparation of reports for regional accreditation, program accreditation, and, and there are not many responsibilities of faculty members that generate quite so much emotion. And, mm -hmm. and I get it. Uh, by the same token, I think having professional standards and a mechanism of accountability are key pieces, both internally and externally. Uh, internally, standards communicate a vision and a process for verification of delivery, and externally, uh, with accountability, cultivate some public understanding and acceptance, and hopefully ultimately support for the professional services we offer, where there is some verification that, uh, some understanding of what we do and some evidence to support that what we do actually has an impact, which has been an ongoing kind of an issue of mine when as physical educators, we claim uh, to create a, a commitment to a lifetime of fitness. Okay, well, how do you verify that you're doing that? You gotta look at people that are, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and 90. And how many of them did you impact? Uh, how do you draw lines between what they do now and what you did in your programs? Those are basically unverifiable. So those are those are problematic for me. Anyway, we offered in, in the chapter two uh, different approaches and, and you know, there was some disagreement. So this would again be a place where I suggest there, there it's possible to have differences but with some shared sense of something needs to happen. Right. So we offered two different approaches. One of them was, uh, you know, offering basically the standards that you identified. There's basically four of them with subparts there. They essentially ask for faculty to describe what they do and document the extent to which they do that. That is, what's the research or theoretical basis that supports what you're saying you do? Can you, can you identify it? Um, does what you deliver in the program actually match up with the research or theory, uh, then uh, is it achieving desired results? So that's where there need to be some sort of proximal measures of what it is you're trying to do. And there is some continuous kind of a, a evaluation so that 
you know, there will be some things you want to continue to keep, some things you need to tweak, and some things that simply don't work or may even be counterproductive that you need to get rid of. Um, the, the other approach was developing some consensus around foundational knowledge and skills, and then beginning to design standards based on that pooled wisdom kind of an approach. Yeah. Both of those are going to require some sort of professional leadership and accountability. Yeah. Um, given the pro proliferation of professional organizations, meaning there are a bunch of people that are AERA, but nothing else. Yeah. Some that are NACAHI, but nothing else. Mm -hmm. Some are AKA, but nothing else. Mm -hmm. And some are in all, and yeah. others are in Shape America, but none of the others, or one or two. I mean, that proliferation of organizations has been problematic. So which or which combination of those might provide that kind of leadership is one question. Um, another um, factor that's a problem there is that um, state authority over how education is delivered rather than a national authority that governs education is a challenge. Uh, and in combination with the free market kind of an environment of higher education where student enrollment is a driving variable, that's another issue of the extent to which uh, people would want to participate in any kind of acknowledgement or accountability for programs that should continue or shouldn't. A few years ago, uh, uh, Phil Ward and some colleagues did some uh, examination of doctoral programs and you know, found some, some programs that were using essentially methods textbooks as their doctoral research textbooks. Hmm. I think that's problematic. Yeah, um, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, uh, but there is no standard to say that's right or wrong. Right. I mean, they, if they can attract students and um, the students earn a degree, <laughs> yeah. um, who's to say they're doing it right or wrong? And that's, I guess, where I, I guess I believe there needs to be some professional leadership and ultimately some level of, of accountability, even if it is public acknowledgement of uh, this program has met these criteria and that program doesn't. And then let the market uh, control that. That is, uh, students look for programs that are essentially accredited, if you will, by a professional body. And I think it's a it's a governance that should be done uh, by us about us. I'm not yeah. looking for some external body of non uh, uh, Pete uh, uh, faculty evaluating our programs, which. Uh, the Kinesiology Society, whichever one of those American Kinesiology Association, I believe it was, does the ranking system that really is just a ranking system. It's not a, a qualitative set of standards used to evaluate programs. It's kind of a ranking of uh, how many faculty have a doctorate, uh, who publishes, where do they publish, how much grant money do they bring in, how many students do they pump out. I mean, there are some pieces in there that might matter to some extent, but they really don't speak to the extent to which the program is accomplishing desirable goals, which is, I believe, a distinction that standards address. Right. Standards address the extent to which yeah, you have some foundation that supports what you do. You can document that you do it and the results are desirable. Uh, yeah. And and frankly, it, it plays nicely into developing the networked improvement kinds of communities where there is a trusted group of colleagues already who who come together and and basically look at each other's programs um, when we did something similar for for k-12 physical education programs in in our state uh, what the feedback that we got from uh, bunches of teachers i worked particularly with the high school level the feedback that we got from the teachers was this was among the best professional development they had ever had because again it was focused and it was long term uh, you know, one of the key things that we know about professional development opportunities when they are short term and shotgun kinds of approaches, they tend not to be terribly effective. The kind of development we were doing was uh, peer program evaluation. And it was, you know, it involved videotapes and uh, documented uh, uh, assessment of students where I'm actually looking at a videotape of students performing a particular activity in your program and looking at how you graded them as competent or not competent. I mean, it's it's more involved than I will go into right now, but the point was that kind of peer assessment proved to be tremendous professional development in that it caused people to, while I'm looking at your program, it's still causing me to think about the way I do things. Right. And serendipitously, sometimes seeing something you do that I think, wow, that's great, I wanna do that, Perhaps also seeing something you do that I think, wow, I could never do that. Mm -hmm. uh, or perhaps seeing something that you experiment with that doesn't go as you might hope and recognizing, ooh, okay, stay away from that. Don't try that one. 
Yeah. It is it was simply tremendous professional development in addition to some level of accountability for what's being delivered in the name of uh, the various programs. Yeah. And I think that what you bring up is, is important too. Like how do you know what program is doing what they say that they're doing one? And then two, like even if you'd search right now, if you type into Google, like the top uh, doctoral programs in physical education, the number one hits that you're going to get are for-profit universities that are not within this like DP commons. Like, and I, and I know that there's one page that is run that has the DP commons and it has a bunch of universities that have uploaded their information and it's a place to kind of search different universities. Uh, but that website is not like the number one thing that comes up. And even if you look at the undergraduate level of, you know, if I Google search right now on campus at George Mason, if I look at doctoral programs in physical education in Virginia or near me, like George Mason didn't come up in the top 10. It was all these for-profit universities even outside of the outside of the university. So I think that that's it's tougher and tougher for people to find that information because there's so much noise. Right. Yeah. But then well, even, if we even focus, go ahead. Even the way programs are named, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a few years ago, there's some hundred or so variations on different kinds of places. Pedagogy programs can be buried. Um, yeah. That makes that kind, the kind of search you're talking about very difficult. And what criteria are being used when you're saying top 10, top 10 based on some kind of criteria. Right. And what those criteria are may have absolutely nothing really to do with the actual quality of the program, uh, which brings me back to some of the kinesiology ranking systems that had to do with numbers of publications, numbers of grant or amounts of grant dollars uh, brought in, some of those kinds of things that I, I think matter in, in some respects, but may not speak at all to the quality of preparation for a, a future teacher or a future teacher educator. Yeah, 100%. So I think towards the end here, like you talk about in your chapter that you've, you've addressed or you tried to address this question and you talked about it in the beginning and then in your concluding thoughts, you talk about the question is to, you wanted the answer to this question, to create or safeguard a desirable future what facilitators, constraints, and barriers merit attention from and action by DP faculty members? So as we're kind of wrapping up the podcast, I think it would be great if we go through and highlight your answer to the questions to the three parts. So uh, let's start first with the first, uh, facilitators. Sure, sure. We were, in fact, trying to summarize uh, ways in which faculty might be able to realize that desirable professional future. And we began with, uh, with three facilitators or ways in which faculty could maximize the potential for programs to deliver on societal needs. And first was uh, the point that professionals must hold themselves accountable for the quality of their service and continuously monitor and adjust as needed. I think that's something within our control and it's a key part of accountability. Uh, second was, and particularly in the neoliberal world in which we live in where there's been much more of a business orientation to making decisions about curriculum and higher education generally, that accountability is, I think, critical. And that monitoring and, and accountability needs to be modeled by us. We must hold ourselves accountable. Second uh, was uh, recognizing that each of us deliver programs that are part of a larger system. And it's critical to sustaining any kind of change or adaptation because changing doctoral programs without attending to what's going on in PEAT programs or K-12 schools represents unsustainable and largely ineffective efforts to make positive change. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll reflect back to uh, some of the things that uh, I was very fortunate to come into here with uh, Judy Rink, who many, many years ago was developing relationships with K-12 teachers who were going to supervise our student teachers. Uh, and she worked with the faculty on campus to develop the teacher preparation programs and had a consistent message delivered to students who were going to go into the schools because the, their supervisors in the public schools were on the same page with us. And our doctoral program, because we were fortunate to also have a doctoral program, our doctoral students were a part of that process as well. And so as we implemented those uh, kinds of uh, efforts at program design and delivery, we had doctoral students, we had faculty, and we had 
uh, folks in the schools all participating in what was going on. So we had a vision for what was going on in the schools. And as uh, things changed there, we could make adaptations to our preparation and our current and future faculty were all part of it. And recognizing that implementing any kind of change in one level only is, is just destined to be um, sh short term and uh, uh, not going to not likely going to be uh, uh, sustainable. Um, so, you see, the third one was understanding that we all have limitations. Yeah, we have access sure. to a wide world of expertise. And so, again, reducing that sense of isolation is is how we can. Um, gain access to those broader perspectives. And as I mentioned, that was basically where Hal, Hans, Phil, and I began. Uh, and personally, I began to feel a little isolated because I've been in an administrative kind of a role and I felt removed from my disciplinary roots in my graduate school duties. And the chance to reach out across the country to have um, those three, because uh, you know they're a good distance removed from South Carolina, was uh, just a kind of a life raft for me. And I think it is potentially there as a facilitator for others as well to reflect on what they do and, and address some of their own feelings of isolation. Yeah. And, and this special issue is, is so good. There's so much content in here. And so I'll ask you one kind of question at the end. You, you made the special issue with three other colleagues. What do you feel like, whether it's from this chapter or this special issue in general, that you would want DP uh, professors to know or to read next, or what are some like actionable items that you would think that at the end of reading the special issue or listening to this podcast, what are some things that you'd like for them to start thinking of differently or to address in their own programs? Okay, let me suggest first, uh, Hal, Hans, Phil, and I were kind of the, the major drivers initially, but we did have help with some other colleagues. So uh, there is another chapter with uh, uh, Darla Castelli and, and uh, a colleague of uh, uh, Darla's in, in Texas um, with uh, uh, Latrice, uh, Latrice Sales Mitchell uh, down at Texas at Austin. Mm -hmm. She, no relation to me, but uh, we also tried to involve some others in another chapter that Hal did with... Uh, representation from Shape, from Nakahi, uh, Stephanie Morse from Shape, Steve Essies from uh, Nakahi, and a couple of other uh, colleagues, Emily Jones and Zach Beddoes uh, from Illinois State and Wisconsin, to, who, who were young, uh, young and up-and-coming scholars. I don't mean, I mean that in a, a positive and, and flattering kind of a way. We wanted some of their youthful, helpful uh, input because they're actively front lines and, and working as well. So I didn't want to make that sound like it was just the four of us that created something. Um, I, the, the key takeaway for me would be, if nothing else, have people reflect on what it is they're doing and interact with others um, to, to initiate some discussion. Stop working in isolation. I think uh, across the board, we continue to lament how isolated we feel and how limited our opportunities and resources are. And that's simply not true. There, there are other people out there that are sharing similar kinds of concerns. So look at and think about what you do and ask for help. I think uh, the, the, we, we hope that there is, in fact, some food for thought and for action here. And again, I guess that key part of action would be reflect on what you do and talk with other people and get uh, uh, you know, gain some additional perspective for what it is that you do. And you described that, uh, Risto, just in terms of the, your, your own experience with uh, uh, qualitative research. Your education might have been limited, if for no other reason than when it happened. Right. I mean, Absolutely. knowledge continues to, to grow. We gain new theoretical insights, new methodological insights, new tools, and you've got to stay abreast of that kind of stuff. And that, that only happens by remaining actively involved, recognizing the degree is a start, not an end to your education. Talking with others can get that help and and to do something. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I, I feel like, you know, you brought up a lot of important parts about DP and there's a ton more in the special issue in addition to this chapter. So um, hopefully this kind of spurs faculty to either look at the standards and you know superimpose them on what they're doing and seeing how things align or reevaluating their own programs and and continue learning so uh, the link is in the show notes for the uh, full article and you can see the comment section 
uh, or you can see the, the link in the comments section there. So um, thank you so much for coming on. I, I really appreciated chatting with you and, and made this paper made me think a lot about what we're doing here as we're getting started with a doctoral program here as well. So I appreciate you pushing Perfect. my thinking forward. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. It's it's uh, obviously content I care about, and as did uh, our colleagues. And I guess uh, mission accomplished. If it caused you to reflect on and think about what you're doing, you know, mission accomplished. I guess again, the the bottom line is I, I, none of us wanted to represent ourselves as anybody with the answers. We want to open some dialogue, perhaps direct people's attention to some pertinent questions. But those answers are available to individuals as they reflect on what they have, what they need, what what their uh, constituents need. So if it causes anybody to reflect on and think about that, then again, I think uh, you can't ask for more than to cause people to think about it a little bit. So yeah. thank you for the opportunity. You got me. So that's one down. There we go. Perfect. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Russell. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.